Hey everyone, welcome back to Vassals of Kingsgrave's Agatha Christie Linear Reread. My name is Bina007 and I will be your host for this mini-pod, episode 26, discussing Murder is Easy, originally published in 1939. This is an Agatha Christie murder mystery that does not feature Hercule Poirot and does not feature Miss Marple, although you'll find out that many adaptations try to make it a Miss Marple book. Instead, it features our hero, Luke Fitzwilliam, who goes to the tiny village of Witchwood to investigate a spate of murders that he has heard about and to discover who the village's serial killer truly is. The title, Murder is Easy, refers to the assertion in the text from Miss Lavinia Pinkerton that murder is in fact incredibly easy so long as no one suspects you. As always, I'll start off with a spoiler-free description of the plot, the main characters, some of the historical context, and how well the novel holds up to contemporary reading. And then I'll get into the spoiler-filled solution discussion after the end credits music, as well as into the adaptations in more depth. So, 1939, a year of World War II, and there is a little bit of politics creeping into this novel, although normally there isn't much. When we first meet Luke, he has come back from colonial service in East Asia and he's struggling to get on with life in London and the England that he observes. In particular, he gets very annoyed with a fellow train passenger. And this is the quote. A full half hour passed before the colonel tired of saying what he thought about these damned communist agitators, sir. So clearly, even though we're fighting fascism, it's still very alive in the public consciousness that communism is also an enemy, despite the fact that we're currently allied with the Soviet Union. The other thing that was really interesting to me, especially given where we are in contemporary society and economics, is that the book seems to have been written in the midst of a cost of living crisis. And this is Miss Lavinia Pinkerton talking about which train ticket she bought. Quote, so I just made the best of a bad job and took the afternoon train instead. And of course, it's a blessing in one way because it's not so crowded. Not that that matters when one is travelling first class. Of course, I don't usually do that. I mean, I should consider it an extravagance, what with taxes and one's dividends being less and servants' wages so much more and everything. But really, I was so upset. But you see, I'm going up on very important business. So you can see the impact of the Great Depression, the Wall Street crash, that even a very middle class woman like Miss Lavinia Pinkerton, who would have some small capital and live on its income, is feeling the bite and the pinch and also that um, she's paying more for her staff. There's also a lot of interesting discussion of changing social mores here. When we first met Agatha Christie in the 1920s, she was very much writing almost of a past Edwardian and Victorian age with very strict social codes. And her bright young thing women were in opposition to that, but they were kind of the exception or very much pioneers. Whereas now it feels like as we enter 1939 that the bright young things, the modern attitudes are very much the norm and people who are holding on to the past attitudes are the exception. But this is still a world that is quite old-fashioned in the world of Downton Abbey. Uh, People in the village wear dinner jackets for dinner. There are no first names unless one is related to the person that you're speaking to. Women will typically wear hats when they go outdoors, and it's remarkable when they don't. And you can still eat deviled kidneys for breakfast. This is the way that Luke Fitzwilliam describes Bridget Conway, who he's just met. 
She had joined him so silently that he had not heard her approach. She wore no hat and there was no net on her hair. So the fact that she has her head uncovered is still something to be remarked upon. And furthermore, on the subject of hats, when one of the victims is found dead, poor Amy Gibbs, who has drunk some hat paint rather than cough mixture, this is the quote. Well, about 20 years ago, people did paint hats. One season you had a pink straw, next season a bottle of hat paint, and it became dark blue. Then perhaps another bottle and a black hat. But nowadays, hats are cheap, tawdry stuff to be thrown away when out of fashion. And this idea is that we've moved into an era of mass consumption and fast fashion, which again, I found quite contemporary. Before we get into the, the cast of characters and the plot, again, let's just take a little moment to talk about the Christie verse. As we know in these novels, as they develop, Christie often refers back to earlier characters and events. Actually, in this novel, she doesn't really get into referring to other cases, maybe because it's not a Hercule Poirot, but a standalone novel. But we do have the recurring character of Superintendent Battle, who has a small cameo at the end, although he's not really involved in detecting the murder. But it is interesting to see him back, which sort of anchors us into the Agatha Christie world. Anyway, let's get into the main characters and the main plot of the novel. So as I said, as the novel opens, we have our hero, Luke Fitzwilliam, who actually is an ex-police officer from India, and he's retired out of the colonial service and has come home. So he does have some background in detection, although as we will discover as the novel unfolds, he is no detective on the level of Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple. And I think for some people who struggle with this novel, including me, that's part of the problem. Because he's not detecting at a strong level, he's not asking questions in a methodical way, there's a lot of repetition. Um, in a sense, he gets a lot of it wrong and it's it's kind of up to us to try and detect, but it's really far less satisfying. And it's interesting to note that this novel was published in a more concise form in its US edition. And one wonders if actually that would be the better edition to read because it would take out a lot of the sort of faffing around that you get with Luke in this one. He's meant to be very good looking. He's quite young and handsome. He's definitely sort of romantic hero of the kind that we got in Agatha Christie's early adventure novels. Um, so from that perspective, he's quite attractive. But as a lead detective, not so much. He's traveling on a train that happens to cross paths with this little village line. And he meets Miss Lavinia Pinkerton, who is an old Miss Marple type, a spinster from a tiny little village. And they get talking and it turns out that Miss Lavinia Pinkerton is on her way to Scotland Yard because she suspects that there is a murderer at work in her village. She talks about the death of Harry Carter, who is the landlord or was the landlord of the local pub, a drunkard who fell off a bridge. She talks about the death of Tommy Pierce, who was an annoying boy that apparently no one really liked and maybe quite sinister, actually, because he liked torturing animals, which we all know is the first sign of a psychopath. Um, but he he had a succession of jobs, finally fell while cleaning the library windows in the village. And she says that she is suspicious about the next victim. She thinks it's going to be Dr. Humblebee, the local doctor in the village, because she says she has seen the killer give the potential victim a certain look. And it's a look that she observed the killer giving the other victims as well. So poor Miss Lavinia Pinkerton's going up to Scotland Yard. She doesn't think the local police have, have ever dealt with murder. So they deal with local incidents. She wants to tell, you know, the central London police who will be better equipped to investigate it. 
But sadly, as Luke finds out from the newspapers, on her way to go to Scotland Yard, poor Miss Lavinia Pinkerton is run over by a car, which of course makes him very suspicious. And he decides, as someone who's newly come to London, has won a small flutter, small gamble on a race, the Epsom Derby, that he's got some time on his hands and he will go to the village. Of course, you can't just go to a small English village because you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Luckily, his best friend Jimmy Lorimer has a cousin who lives in the village and her name is Bridget Conway. So Jimmy arranges for Luke to go to the village to stay with Bridget and to go under the guise of writing a book or researching a book because the local village is known for superstitions. So the idea is that Luke is going to ask lots of people about death um, because that will hopefully bring up the murders on the guys that he wants to know about any sort of pagan rituals that are being conducted in the area. So when he gets to the village, he discovers that the big wig in town is a chap called Lord Whitfield, or Lord Easterfield in the US edition of the book. And he started off as a poor boy in the village, um, but is a self-made millionaire newspaper baron. And he came back in grand style and bought the manor house and is now Lord of the Manor. And he is engaged to Bridget, the much younger, very pretty cousin of Jimmy Lorimer. We then have various characters in the village. We have Dr. Humbleby, the aforementioned doctor. He has a very pretty daughter who is interested in Dr. Humbleby's sidekick, Dr. Thomas. We also have a widowed um, major, Major Horton. We have a local solicitor called Mr. Abbott who once employed Tommy Pierce. We have Mr. Ellsworthy, who owns the local antique shop and apparently on the side performs occult rituals, more of whom later. And we have various other characters who float around the village. The murders continue happening. Uh, Luke does spend his time asking a number of questions. Quite soon, he takes Bridget Conway into his confidence, partly because he just fancies her rotten, even though she's engaged to another man. And eventually we detect the outcome of who done it. So how does the book hold up to a modern reader? Well, on the whole, I would say it's pretty good. But there is a really problematic character, which is Mr. Ellsworthy, um, who is described using terminology that we would now think incredibly offensive in describing someone who was gay. So here are two quotes. First of all, Mr. Ellsworthy was a very exquisite young man dressed in a colour scheme of russet brown. He had a long pale face with a womanish mouth, long black artistic hair and a mincing walk, end quote. So the womanish mouth, the artistic hair, the mincing walk, this is all very derogatory and lightly coded. And then here's the really horrible one when Luke asks the major about Mr. Ellsworthy, quote, he doesn't play golf, much too much of a Miss Nancy. And of course, in modern times, the idea of using the word Nancy is not far off the F word for gay people. It's really horrible. So it's another example. That it's very rare to find explicitly gay people in Agatha Christie. I think the largest one was probably Lord Edgware Dies. And in that book, he was seen as almost a cultist, perverse, sadistic. It was... It was seen as unnatural and very unhealthy and weird and sort of nasty. And even in this book, it's much the same that he's the, I think the adjective perverse is used. He deals in the occult. It's seen as something rather sinister. So, of course, that does not hold up well to modern eyes, thankfully. On the other hand, I do wonder if the book is rather progressive in its attitude towards women and marriage in particular. So as Luke Fitzwilliam discovers that he's in love with Bridget Conway, 
He obviously interrogates her about her forthcoming marriage to Lord Whitfield. And this is what Bridget says in response. I don't tell myself fairy stories. I'm a young woman with a certain amount of intelligence, very moderate looks and no money. I intend to earn an honest living. My job as Gordon's wife will be practically indistinguishable from my job as Gordon's secretary. After a year, I doubt if he'll even remember to kiss me goodnight. The only difference is the salary. And I kind of admire her very pragmatic attitude towards marriage. It reminds me a little bit of Pride and Prejudice when Elizabeth's um, good friend Charlotte decides to marry the Reverend, who's really oleaginous and sycophantic and horrible. But it's a prudential match from her perspective. And I think there's something very pragmatic and sensible in, in Bridget's attitude towards this. And she is like a really interesting character. She is definitely one of Agatha Christie's modern, practical, smart, intelligent young women. But she's not as flighty and flapperish as some of the characters from the 1920s and early 30s, and therefore probably not quite as charismatic. There's something cynical and jaded about her. We learn that she was jilted in an early love match, and um, yeah, she's altogether a harder character and maybe not quite as attractive. I am well aware when I say that that I'm falling into the trap of saying that a female character is not likeable, God forbid. Anyway, let's get into the adaptations, of which there are a few. So there's a 1982 movie, TV movie, made um, in the US, and it stars Bill Bixby. So if any of you watched The Incredible Hulk on TV in the 70s, that's the guy. Leslie Ann Down, who is very pretty, as Bridget. And amazingly enough, Olivia de Havilland as Honoria Wainfleet. Helen Hayes as Lavinia Pinkerton. It's got an amazing cast, actually. It's very lavishly done. It's got a very ornate score. It feels like watching Columbo, one of those very sort of overly scored dramas, detective films from that period. It's also very 1984 because all the costumes are very of the 80s, particularly Leslie Ann Down, who at one point is wearing a jumpsuit. It's very faithful to the book. So if you want an adaptation that really saves you reading it, this is the one. Um, The only change really is to make Luke American. And he's actually a professor of computing at MIT, which is really interesting to see, even in 1982, that this was seen as the next big thing. I have to say, I really did quite like this adaptation. And you can watch it on YouTube for free. So there you go. Then there's a 2009 adaptation, which is part of the ITV, the British TV channel's Miss Marple series. And she is played by Julia McKenzie, who I really like, actually. I think she's very sympathetic and a good actress. Um, It is very different to the novel, very different indeed. And from my perspective, even though the cast is fantastic, you've got a very young Benedict Cumberbatch as Luke. You've got Shirley Henderson as Honoria Wainfleet. I think it kind of stands up on its own, but there is a big flaw. And I'll discuss that in the spoiler filled um, part of the episode. And then apparently the BBC is creating a new version of Murder is Easy. Um, And it's going to be set in, or it's being filmed currently, I believe, in Edinburgh, because you can see pictures on Instagram. It stars David Johnson as Fitzwilliam, Morfid Clark, for all you Rings of Power fans, as Bridget. Penelope Wilton from Downton Abbey as Miss Pinkerton. So I think it'll be interesting to see what that one looks like and how faithful it is. Um, That said, all the recent BBC ones have tended to try and make the story more contemporary and sort of build out the politics. So let's see what happens with that. Anyway, if you've read Murder is Easy, it'll be interesting to see what you think. You can hop on the Vassals of Kingsgrave Discord and discuss it with us. 
from my perspective, it's definitely second tier Christie. It may even be third tier. I'll get into why in the spoiler filled part of the discussion. That said, if you are disappointed by the ranking of this book, and I really don't particularly recommend you read it if you haven't already, stay tuned because in the next episode, we are going to be covering arguably Agatha Christie's greatest novel and certainly the most best-selling. I think it's one of the most best-selling novels ever published. And then there were none. So save all your reading juices and critical juices for that one. All right, boys and girls, let's get into the solution of this novel. And this will be spoiler filled. So if you haven't read it, um, please tune away now. The solution of the novel is that Lord Whitfield was engaged to Honoria Wainfleet and he saw her in a fit of temper strangle her pet bird and broke off the engagement. And she was very upset by this, not just because she was in love with him, but more because she was of high social standing and he was just a common working class boy. And she had been lowering herself to be engaged to him in the first place. So how dare he break off the engagement? And she basically takes this and makes a very slow, long form of revenge, which is to kill lots of people who have crossed his path. So the unifying factor behind all the victims is they have somehow had a run in with Lord Whitfield. And she kills them in a way that will implicate him. Now, he's such a pompous ass that he really genuinely believes that he is, you know, his life is one of incredible success and God must favor him and is smiting down people who have crossed his path. So he he actually gets that he's the link between all the victims and he gets the intentionality. But in his vanity, he thinks that this is all very providential. He doesn't realize that it's Honoria Wainfleet who is up against him. And actually, neither does Luke. Luke is a terrible detective. And the fact that he's a terrible detective really mars the construction and the technical um, crime-solving fun of this novel. And it's a real problem that he is the hero. Once again, as an Agatha Christie, it's the girls who are smarter, especially when you have these male-female detecting couples like Tommy and Tuppence. It's often the fact that the guys have the brawn, but it's the women who have the brains. And in this case, Bridget Conway guesses that it is not, in fact, Lord Whitfield, but Honoria Wainfleet, because she catches Honoria in a lie and wonders how many more lies she's told. So really, the final scene is kind of a battle between the two women, the two very smart, underestimated women of the village. What I would say is I think that Agatha Christie really gets the psychology of a serial killer. The idea that it would have started in youth, that she would have had and built up layers of psychopathic behaviour before getting to the murders. And if you think that she was writing at a time before behavioural science and the idea to us that some of those traits are very well known and understood, I think it's actually pretty impressive. And this is where I think the ITV 2009 adaptation really falls down because they completely changed the motivation around the murder. I won't reveal it too much in case you want to watch it. But it then becomes clear that the murderer has had to plan all this out with about a week's notice in response to an event occurring, rather than planning it out over a long drawn period where the meticulous multiple murders can be planned out. And I find that not credible. I also find it not credible that someone who's basically a nice, decent, moral, law-abiding person could suddenly turn to being a serial killer. The entire point of the book, 
and indeed that very faithful 1982 adaptation is that this person already had sadistic anger-filled psychopathic tendencies and finally found an ever more sort of elaborate ruse to sort of play them out that said I do think if you think that you know hell hath no fury like a woman scorned maybe the more straightforward thing would just be to kill the person who broke your heart but no this is a very very elaborate plot Overall, I don't think it's a particularly good book. I think that's because it doesn't have a detective at its heart. And because it doesn't have a detective at its heart, it doesn't allow us to detect in turn in a way that's fully satisfying. But as I said before, stay tuned for And Then There Were None, because that really is Agatha Christie's magnum opus. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 